Hello and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, it may sound quaint, but I sell tea. That does sound quaint. And you don't even like tea. I don't. Uh, I guess it's easy to not get hooked on my own supply this way. That is true. You, uh, yeah, you're just hooked on phonics instead. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Correct. Now uh, we have a very interesting film to talk about this week. But before we get there, we have to induct this week's new Spy Hard Die Hard. That's right. And of course, if you want to become a Spy Hard's Die Hard, just leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. You know, perhaps five stars. That'd be nice. And then we will read it on the show and give you. Your top secret Spy Hard's codename. And uh, a couple of episodes ago, I kind of put out a challenge where I said, you know, if you want to become a diehard, you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. But basically, we'll read what you write. So you could basically write anything, especially if it's funny, it's better, as long as it's a five-star review. Now, this person has taken it slightly to the extreme, which I do appreciate. Okay, proceed. But just to preface, I mean, you know, if you want me to declare my undying love for the Ipcris file, just leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I'll have to say it. If you want Cam to say that I am the best podcast host of all time, just write it in the review, and he'll have to say it. Well, there may be some censored. You know, I'll put up the classic espionage black blocks over things. It'll be redacted. Cam really doesn't want to admit that, apparently. (laughs) It'll just say, like, I love spy hards blank redacted is great (laughs) (laughs) well uh speaking of is great here is our latest inductee from the user colin hay fan now if that's the colin hay i can think of it's a great musician and you have a great choice in not only podcasts but singer songwriters so well done on that but here is the review five stars simply the best When it comes to spy movie podcasts, nobody does it better, which feels like a a little bit of an inside, like a dig, like we're the best of spy movie podcasts. (laughs) I'm willing to take the compliment. I am too. I am too. And they leave us with the line, can I be a spy hard die hard now? Yes. Yes. Yes, you can. Mission unlocked. Yeah. Accomplished. You did it. Congratulations. Colin, hey fan, welcome to this esteemed group of people that are spyhards, diehards. And uh, now, of course, you get to name your secret code name uh, after this week's film. Yeah, that's right. And make it singular. You can uh, remove the pluralizing of the title and just make it singular. And that is one badass code name. That actually is pretty cool as far as it goes. So Colin Hayfan, welcome aboard. If you want to join Colin Hayfan and all the other wonderful people that are part of the Spy Hards Die Hard, you just heard how to do it. So make it so. But without further ado, let's get to the review. Okay, Cam, it's time to get our sea legs. What on earth are we talking about this week? We are talking about 1980s The Sea Wolves, starring Gregory Peck, Roger Moore, and David Niven couple of spy connections there just a few just a few and there's actually a few more under the surface of those main lead actors that we'll talk about too but i think we need to sort of deal with the elephant in the room cameron yes Uh, his name is moore roger moore Mm. 
This is the first time in Spy Hard's history that we're talking about Roger Moore. Now, it occurred to us last week that it was the first time talking about George Smiley. It took us three and a half years. Now, I know, of course, Deadly Affair doesn't feature George Smiley. I think it's, is it Charles Dobbs, I believe? I remember the Dobbs. I don't remember the first name, but yeah. Yeah, but that is just a renaming of the, the George Smiley character. So I'm allowed that one. And it took us three and a half years to get there, but it's also taken three and a half years to get to Roger Moore. What are we doing? I mean, to be fair, we did talk about the Wild Geese and Spice World over on the Patreon. So people that want to get Roger Moore content can actually go to the Patreon and hear those past Roger Moore episodes. They certainly can. Patreon.com slash spyhards. That's the first cheap plug of the episodes for those keeping count. But yeah, on the official feed, this is our first Roger Moore spy film. So I'm very excited to sort of see how Moore fares. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll find out, folks. Strap yourselves in. And uh, I guess then, you know, for you know the Sea Wolves, for those who haven't seen the Sea Wolves, here is your synopsis. And Cam has given me a look that that pun wasn't very good, but he can shut his face because it was great. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> the Sea Wolves, the last charge of the Calcutta Light Horse. A German spy is passing on information about the location of Allied ships in the neutral harbour of Goa, India, with catastrophic results. Unable to undertake a full military operation in the Portuguese stronghold, English intelligence brings out of retirement a crew of geriatric ex-soldiers. Poor guys. He was still doing Roger. He was still doing Bond films at this point. Poor Rog. Well, he was in his early fifties. Um, he's like the young kid of the group. He certainly is. Geriatric ex-soldiers, veterans from World War One, using their age as cover. These old soldiers are asked to take to the seas and pull off an unlikely undercover mission. Okay, I I felt like that was hanging there. I was like, okay. It really was. It was a. Uh, it, it sort of left it open ended there. It wasn't even like a dot 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 to sort of make you go. Oh, I wonder what happens. It was just very much. Uh, that's the end of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't help but uh, think that like when I was watching the movie, that they kept mentioning the Calcutta Light Horse, and I really didn't know what that was. <laughs> I'm like, I understood by the end of the movie. I'm like, okay, I understand exactly what that is. But like when you frame it that way, yeah, it sounds like a ship or something like that. Like it sounds like something that is something that could charge. <laughs> <laughs> sure i think it's going into sort of that old english colonialism that sort of thing like it's a it's a group of men but it's like a brigade that yeah you know, the last charge of the valkyrie or whatever you call it like it's it's going for that sort of thing whether it's successful or not we'll get into but yeah i i had no idea what they were either <laughs> although i did find out through the i you know through doing my research which we'll get into in a second that this is based off of a real story which actually blew my mind yeah uh, and I mean, the the fact the movie's called The Sea Wolves, and you're mentioning the Calcutta Light Horse, I'm like, well, clearly that is a ship on the sea. Like, that is what this movie's about. And so, like, I really, it took a little bit of realigning in my brain to uh, get the pieces in place as I proceeded through the movie. It's actually really mixing its metaphors there, isn't it? Yeah, not a lot of horse in the sea, although I guess there are seahorses. <laughs> I guess there are. It doesn't have the same sort of cool title, though, The Seahorses. Should they have called it The Seahorses? See, there is that. There is also, you could just call it something like uh, The Last Charge of the Calcutta Light Horse. That's true. Or the last, the last Charge. That's too generic. And the other one's a little too wordy. 
Um, no, no, geriatric. I did have a question for you though. Who are the Sea Wolves? Surely it's David Niven, Gregory Peck, and Co. Is it, or is it like the Germans who are like predators in the ocean, picking off all these ships? Oh, I'd never considered that. Yeah, that's a very good question. Who are the Sea Wolves? Why are the Sea Wolves? <laughs> what are the Sea Wolves? <laughs> Who knows? Actually, let us know, folks. What do you think that is? I, I mean, looking at the cover of the uh, yeah, the poster art, it says the Sea Wolves and it has their pictures. So one would assume it's meant to be our group of spies. And there's connectivity between this and the wild geese. And clearly, Roger Moore and crew are the wild geese. But in this movie, I was like, well, wolves are like predators. And I don't know that I would say that the, uh, the light horse team are like predators of the sea. Uh, no, and I don't think there are very many uh, geriatric predators. They wouldn't do very well. Okay, also, geriatric um, in the movie, 100%, but they kept referring to them in the movie as middle-aged, and I was like, what the hell is going on? Well, I, just for a little bit of uh, color for folks, off-air before we hit record, I've recently thrown my back out, and Cam has been having about two hours of sleep every night. Uh, I think we have hit uh, geriatric age, according to this film. We are all David Niven. <laughs> <laughs> we are. We are the sea wolves. Maybe. We're not sure about the sea wolves part. <laughs> yeah, actually, we don't know who we are. We're just old. That's all we know. I guess the light horse team? I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like I'm on my last charge. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, I'll just throw it out, sort of. I, I would assume that neither of us have seen this film before. I know I haven't, and I would guess it's the same for you. Safe assumption. Uh, but it is a movie that I definitely saw commercials for as a kid. Okay. Uh, it feels like the kind of like 8 p.m. on a Thursday programmer they would have thrown on because I also saw commercials back in the day for The Wild Geese mm -hmm. and The Wild Geese 2. And this movie would, I'm sure, play very well, you know, one week after another with Wild Geese films. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, it's like the sort of man on a mission type films, very much in the, in the vein of Where Eagles Dare, that sort of stuff but not super expensive to license for TV as well, right? Like something mm -hmm. like Where Eagles Dare or The Dirty Dozen or, um, you know, uh, The Great Escape. Movies like that. Force 10 to Navarone. Navarone. Not that one as much. Not that one as much. Oh, uh, okay. But maybe Guns of Navarone. These are movies that are like held at a much higher level. And so oh. they're a little more expensive to, you know, get on your TV network versus something like Wild Geese 2 or The Sea Wolves. Uh, I suspect that they were a real bargain. Are you saying this is a lesser affair, Cam? Well, I'm just saying the box office was pathetic, so oh, like it would have been okay. it would have been quite easy to license. But like we we have a history with a lot of these actors already. Uh, you know, we've mentioned. I mean, we haven't tackled Gregory Peck on the show just yet. I don't think. Uh, no, but I think we will be again fairly soon. Yeah, I think we have another film in our sights that's squarely a Gregory Peck film. Of course, this is Roger Moore's first trip to the show, but we've had David Niven on before for Casino Royale 67. Trevor Howard, who we hadn't mentioned off the top, but has been in quite a few uh, spy films we've covered on the show. You've also got Patrick McNee in here. A few other names that have some history with spy movies. So there, there is a lot here that we've uh, sort of dealt with in the past, but never in this sort of grouping. Yeah, Wolf Collar as well is someone that we've definitely stumbled across he of course was the blonde nazi officer in um raiders of the lost ark which we haven't covered mm. but he has popped up in a few things and i can't even think of what it was but it may have been uh oh god uh firefox perhaps um 
he's just someone who has a very long filmography, and I feel like we've seen him pop up a couple times. I'm just having a quick scroll through his IMDb now because you've got me quite curious. I, I mean, if it's uh, Firefox, that would be pretty cool. It, he was in Firefox. I think there might be something else, though. Maybe something when he was a bit younger. Oh, the Born Identity miniseries as well. He was also in The Eagle Has Landed. Yeah, so he's an actor that definitely shows up a lot, and I'm sure we'll see uh, quite a bit more. He is apparently in the 1979 version of The Lady Vanishes, which is also on our list to cover in the future as well. So he okay. may be like um, one of those guys who's just kind of a standard of the Spy Hearts podcast, but not like a James Mason all-in-lights type. He's just mm -hmm. one of those supporting characters, because he's also, I noticed, in Force 10 from Navarone. So we'll see him there too as well. He's no Dabney Coleman. But who is really? He is the original Seawolf. Oh. <laughs> no one, no one howls in this film, and it is for the best. Should they have done that when they're going into battle? Like, just to bring some sort of connection to wolves. But wait, are they the Seawolves, or are the Germans the Seawolves? Maybe they should be the ones howling before they attack. I don't know. I mean, we're not going to get any closer to it by the end of this episode, but let's just have a... Let's, uh, and we're not going to do any more research whilst we're doing this conversation, so maybe we'll find out afterwards through discussions on social media. But let's, let's, let's plant a flag now. Do you think that our leads, our protagonists, are the sea wolves? No, I don't. I do. Okay, so it's up to you guys out there in audience land to settle this one for us. Audience land, I like that. Okay, let us know, folks. Let us know uh, how right I am. But let's get to these wolves and how do they get to see, allegedly, and how <laughs> do we get this film in the first place? Okay, so this was an adaptation of a book by James Leeser, who is a prolific English writer, wrote historical novels and thrillers, and served in Burma in World War II. So you could see definitely some connections between this movie where Burma is acknowledged specifically. Mm -hmm. as I believe it was Trevor Howard's son was lost in Burma. Yeah. Um, and in 1978, he published a book called The Boarding Party. And The Boarding Party was ultimately the story of the Seawolves. They changed the title along the way. They felt The Boarding Party wasn't exciting enough for a major motion picture, I suppose. Sure. But it was based on Operation Creek, uh, which was a World War II um, operation that played out somewhat like this movie. Conceptually, like this movie, not quite dramatically like this movie, uh, but it was a mission that was basically top secret until 1978 when this author uh, wrote about it and made it more something that was known to the public. Mm -hmm. And it was about a team of middle-aged uh, men who went on this covert mission. I think there may have been some changes, Scott. I think probably in real life, the team was probably in their 40s and 50s. But for the movie, they were like, let's get all these old, you know, classic British actors together. Well, it's if you look at the timeline, look at World War One, and add 20 or so years to get to World War Two, that would firmly put most men who were serving around that time in their sort of late 30s, early 40s. Yeah, yeah. So I think that is probably more accurate versus this being a little more of a case of we've had a number of these older uh, action hero movies that are successful. Let's do that. Uh, yeah, I think there was a little bit of opportunity going on there. Sure. Uh, I will note, though, David Niven, who we mentioned is in this cast, um, James Leeser wrote a novel called Passport to Oblivion, which was adapted into a 1965 David Niven spy film called Where the Spies Are. 
Oh, so that's uh, is that one we had on the list already, or it came to you whilst doing the research? No, it is on the list, but that's, what, 15 years before the Seawolves. So Leeser's work, he doesn't have like a massive number of stories or novels that have been turned into films, but mm-hmm. there's a small handful, and that one, the David Niven one, is uh, one of the ones that jumps out. Okay, be nice to revisit that in the future. Yeah, sure. and so the rights to the boarding party were bought up for £75,000 by wild geese producer ian lloyd and he saw Mm -hmm. this as a follow-up to that film and discovered it actually he was reading the book while recuperating from kidney surgery a friend gave it to him as a gift and uh he was like this plays perfectly and he was looking at it as an opportunity to actually reunite roger moore with richard burton and richard harris and make this kind of a unofficial wild geese sequel so this is something that confused me when i was briefly looking this film up with it being a sequel to Wild Geese. So the idea originally was it was an unofficial sequel. So you'd have the same actors, but completely different characters. Yeah, it would be a little bit like the uh, the quasi-sequel to A Fish Called Wanda, Fierce Creatures, where you have the whole cast back, but they're playing new characters. I see. Okay, that, that makes more sense. Um, so how did, why didn't that happen? I think uh, for whatever reason, Richard Burton and Richard Harris were just like, eh, we're good. Who are the wolves? I don't understand. I'm not doing this film. Yeah, so in... Instead, it wound up being a reunion between David Niven and Gregory Peck from the Guns of Navarone. So I guess it had that for its marketing uh, sure. you know, factor there. Yeah, and uh, bringing together of two bonds, not that they would acknowledge Casino Royale, I suppose. Do you think at any point David Niven and Roger Moore talked about James Bond together? I have to imagine they probably did, because both, I would imagine, respected each other and uh, probably got on socially. So the fact that two of them have played one of the most iconic characters of all time, despite one's uh, version being banished to many people's disavowed lists. Well, hold on now. How long do you think those two actors were actually together on this set? Well, that's a whole other thing. Uh, that's, a, that's something I want to get into later. But in terms of those two together, I think they have a couple of scenes together at the start, and that's it. So yeah. I'd say maybe a week of shooting. And this would have been Roger Moore coming off of uh, Moonraker. So mm-hmm. I would have to imagine he was just bombarding David Niven with stories about Moonraker. Ironically, both have UFOs in them. Mm, mm. And so, yes, this movie also brought back some other Wild Geese creatives. Um, so Ian Lloyd brought back Reginald Rose, who had written The Wild Geese and New York-born writer, um, started in the early 1950s in TV and in 1956, he had his first major motion picture, directed by Don Siegel, who did Dirty Harry and a number of other Clint Eastwood films, as well as some other great work, mm-hmm. and starring John Cassavetes. And that movie was called Crime in the Streets. It was about a social worker. And it was one of those early sort of teenager hysteria movies about the fear of the youth out there on the streets. But anyways, he moved on and he did some TV, including the teleplay for the Studio One production, 12 Angry Men which then Reginald Rose turned into the screenplay for the film version, which became, oh, I don't know, a little bit of a classic. Just a little bit and uh, had a little bit of connective tissue to last week's film too. That's right, yeah. And uh, so he got an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay for that film, as well as was nominated as a producer for Best Picture. Okay. Uh, And he interestingly didn't really continue doing a lot of prestige films. He bounced between a lot of TV and the odd movie. And it wasn't really until you get to like 1978, which when he does Wild Geese, which is where it's like he has another really kind of notable movie that stands out on his filmography. 
Uh, he also that same year did a movie with um, Farrah Fawcett and Jeff Bridges called Somebody Killed Her Husband that I don't think anyone remembers. And that was kind of the lead in to the Sea Wolves. And he would post the Sea Wolves also write Wild Geese 2. But his final credit, I think Scott, you'll appreciate his final credit in 2014 was for 12 Minds, a Star Trek fan film. No way. Yes. A Star Trek fan film. Red Alert for those keeping track so this guy who wrote so he wrote 12 angry men he wrote the sea wolves wild geese wild geese 2 and a star trek fan film yeah what a bizarre Uh, career i need to look this guy up now i want to see what this fan film was i mean i'm intrigued by him because clearly he had greatness in him you know if you're writing 12 angry men like Mm -hmm. there's a spark there but it's interesting how it doesn't seem like he ever really capitalized on that in the movie world. Uh, I would, you know, if I was more of a TV aficionado, maybe I would go through his TV credits and be like, oh no, this guy was cranking out genius on television, but I just really don't know about that. Well, I, I, oh, uh, well, I can give you a little bit of context for, uh, I don't think he actually wrote this. I think he's credited. uh, It's a story credit. Yeah. It's a story credit because it's a it's a Star Trek spin uh, sort of spin on Twelve Angry Men. No, no, he wrote it. He sat down at his typewriter <laughs> and wrote the Star Trek fan film. <laughs> it's it's also a completely uh, Czechoslovakian production, so I'm not sure it's him. <laughs> Discovery of the week. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I, I don't know how we ended up here, folks, but this is where we are. Yeah. And so also coming back from Wild Geese, director Andrew V. McLaughlin, who was a London-born director, started off as an assistant director on a 1945 film called Love, Honor, and Goodbye. He also worked on a 1950 movie called Killer Shark that I will be adding to my watch list. (laughs) Um, Notably, though, as an assistant director in 1952, he Mm -hmm. works on a movie called Big Jim McLean. Oh, which no. was a spy icon film for us. Uh, that's John Wayne headed to Hawaii to find communists. And that relationship he forges with Wayne, I think, kind of pays off because the next year he does Island in the Sky with John Wayne. And the following year, he does The High and the Mighty. And the following year, he does Blood Alley with John Wayne. He does four in a row mm. uh, John Wayne productions. Interesting to note as well that Big Jim McLean is very aquatic. He is, Yeah. That's right. Did he surf or did we just want him to surf? Uh, I think he's on like a, um, I want to say catamaran. Oh, yeah. It's coming back to me. Yeah, that's right. How could you forget Big Jim? That's true. I know. How could I ever forget? We, we don't know how the union stands until we saw that film. <laughs> it stands strong. <laughs> it certainly does. And um, McLaughlin post his sort of assistant directing career moves in the year after blood alley to directing with a movie called gun the man down which is a western starring mm. james arness who was the co-star of big jim mclean i didn't think that the Seawolves would have so much big jim mclean and uh 12 angry men love in it but i don't know a lot of geriatric men running around right now yeah, a lot of older man energy going on this yeah. week on our Spy Hearts Connections. People always say that like the Taken films were sort of the launch of the old man action films, but they've been around for a very long time. They have, yeah, yeah. And McLaughlin soon pairs with John Wayne, you know, after his initial sit in the big director's chair mm-hmm. and directs a number of what I call the mediocre John Wayne films. <laughs> I always knew, you know, when I was going through the John Wayne films, whenever I got to an Andrew V. McLaughlin film, it's like, okay, this one will be just 
okay. <laughs> you set the bar at three stars and are sometimes surprised at four. Yeah, so he does McClintock, which is more of a comedy. A very, very, very outdated comedy. Can John Wayne do a comedy? He did a few, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. He directed the Hellfighters, in which John Wayne plays a specialist who tackles oil rig fires in international territories. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 61, let's just say the action for Mr. Wayne is very convincing in those firefighting scenes. He's a real uh, sea wolf, that guy. Yeah, he did the Western, the Undefeated, and Chisholm. Chisholm's actually not bad. And then closed out his John Wayne films with Cahill, U.S. Marshal, which is pretty lousy. Uh, but there's five right there. And then he also works with James Stewart on the Westerns, Shenandoah, which was, I think, pretty solid, and The Rare Breed, which wasn't. Uh, and then we get to, like, the 70s, and he does The Wild Geese, and follows that up with North Sea Hijack, which is another older man action movie starring Roger Moore and James Mason. Which has a an interesting alternate name. Do you know that one? Um, yeah, what is it again? Well, it's it's Folks. Oh! But it's spelt with two Fs. Yeah, okay, okay. I would say that North Sea Hijack is a better title. Well, it's as good as a title as uh, The Sea Wolves. Oh, North Sea Hijack is as good a title as The Sea Wolves. Yeah, I think The yeah. Sea Wolves is a pretty catchy title. I see why they went with it, but it actually is no point ever mentioned in the film. No, that's true. Do you think f uh, f f Folks is like one of the worst titles ever? It's confusing because people will be like, f f Folks? F f Folks? Uh, and they'll be pronouncing it. I mean, it's the kind of thing you go to Blockbuster and you're too embarrassed to ask about. I don't know why I mentioned Blockbuster. I don't live in 1988. <laughs> that to me is just like a really dire title for a film. Maybe it makes sense within the context if I actually watch the movie. But in terms of just seeing that title, that's really awkward. Excuse me, I need to just pour out this glass of uh, Crystal Pepsi. <laughs> and this movie also of course was inspired by the exploits of real life major general lewis Pugh, who gregory peck is playing in the film and he was a technical advisor on this movie as well to give it some legitimacy but it did draw from other operations not just the light horse story so there's mm. there's a little bit of mingling going on here between real life operations and uh also the character of Mrs. Cromwell was an entire invention of the screenplay, not someone who was uh, something that happened in real life. I've got some notes on old Cromwell. Don't you worry about that. We'll be getting there. And it's interesting for fans of this film, the the the, the sea wolves out there, all you lovely <laughs> sea wolves out there, folks, in listener land. <laughs> Howl for us, baby. You can actually watch the royal premiere on YouTube. They've got a 10, 15 minute mini documentary on it. And you see that chap Cam just mentioned there, uh, mingling with people. But the best bit is to watch it for is Roger Moore basically just schmoozing with the royals and like having a, a, a good old joke about while the rest of them are sort of all shaking hands. Like Greg, even Gregory Peck is being super respectful. But like Roger Moore is cracking jokes with, with I think it's like Prince Andrew or someone's wife. It's uh, pretty hilarious to watch. I mean, that must have been old hat for Roger Moore at that point, right? Because the royals sure. came to a number of the Bond premieres. And this would be him coming off his fourth Bond film, so, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, they probably all know him by name. I wouldn't be surprised if he'd actually hung out with them in other situations other than just premieres at that point. He was a British institution. Yeah. Do you think the Royals came to the premiere of Wild Geese? No, but they came to Wild Geese too. <laughs> they thought it was the first Wild Geese. They were very confused. <laughs> uh, also, another film with a weird name. You think you'd find the plural of geese? Geese is... 
plural. Says you. It's goose and geese. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Look, folks, I, my back's thrown out. I'm on some heavy pain meds right now. Just stick with my loopiness. Geese, goose, I'm goosed. <laughs> so the box office on this movie is really weird. Uh, it had a budget of $12 million. If you look up online how much it made, it made about 220 something thousand dollars. That's not a lot. No. And so I was baffled because that's such a low number that like, why is this not regarded as one of the all-time biggest box office bombs? Yeah. And that's just a domestic number. My guess is a lot of the numbers are just lost to the sands of time. I mean, I would have to imagine in the UK, it probably did decently, right? You've got a lot of British stars. I don't think mm -hmm. it would have made $220,000 if it's playing in both the US and UK. But you've also got Gregory Peck there as well. Like, that's a big American star that would pull some people in. So all I found was that the movie was not a success. So I could say like it didn't perform particularly well. Okay. Um, but there was some weird behind the scenes on this one because Lorimer Productions, the production company behind this film, paid um, half of the budget for this movie in exchange for domestic distribution. And then they had a deal with United Artists that United Artists would help them distribute it, right? Mm -hmm. But that deal they had ended early, which left the Seawolves in kind of like a weird limbo. Mm -hmm. And so it actually sat on the shelf for a while until they paired with Paramount. And it was released in New York on June 5th, 1981, and released in LA on June 4th, 1982. So there was a year difference between the release of the Seawolves in New York to LA. And a year before or year after it came out in the UK. Yeah. That's all. So I'm wondering if this was a movie that just had a lot of distribution problems. And so that would even account for the lack of solid numbers on the box office. It definitely would. And also you have to think this is, and you said this off the top, this is the kind of film that was probably played a lot on television. Yeah. I have to also imagine this is a film that was rented a lot and actually did quite well on home home video. I would have to believe so. Yeah, because The Seawolves is not ultra obscure. No. This is not like some of those Spy Hearts films that we tackle where it's like, here's a movie that has emanated from the mists of the lost times. It's, it's a real tattoo. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is a movie that people know. Yeah, I posted about it on social media recently, though. I was watching it and got a ton of feedback. Some people liking it, some people not. But, like, it's a it's a known quantity. You say, I'm watching The Seawolves. People go, oh, that's the, uh, that's the Gregory Peck film. Or that's the Roger Moore film. Yeah. Maybe it speaks to the movie's success, though, that the producer then pivoted and did Wild Geese 2 shortly after, as opposed to trying other original stories with older casts. Like, he recognized that Wild Geese was the success, and maybe he should capitalize on that versus this kind of quasi-sequel. Yeah, but conversely, he may have also just had trouble with the the promotional side of all this and been like, I'll, I'll stick with something I know. I probably have a deal that wherever the Wild Geese 1 was made, that I can just stick to that same production team and be safe there yeah entirely possible so yeah the uh kind of the behind the scenes there in terms of sea wolves is really interesting and weird and not uh particularly well recorded but uh, i'd love to know more if anyone out there knows um the top three for the year number one was the empire strikes back number two was nine to five and number three was stir crazy um it's interesting when i read those three titles and i think um the sea wolves does not feel like it comes from the same year as those movies <laughs> No, it really doesn't. This definitely has a, uh, 
I don't want to say like it has an old feel to it because uh, we've already got a, a film for the geriatrics, allegedly, but just dated, perhaps. Well, like McLaughlin, the director, is in the 1950s making all these John Wayne films mm-hmm. and Jimmy Stewart westerns. And it feels like an old filmmaker who kind of doesn't have a place in a evolving Hollywood. And so he's making movies the way he knows how to make them. But when you look at what else is in the marketplace, they feel kind of strange. It, even like, you know, Roger Moore's doing Bond films at this time, they feel leaps and bounds ahead of this. And that, and this is the John Glenn era, which isn't exactly... Uh, John Glenn's a fabulous director, and I've, I've loved speaking with him, and I have all the time for John. But I wouldn't say he's someone that pushes cinema forward. No, and notably, he's an editor on this film. Is he now? Yeah, he was the editor on The Sea Wolves. I didn't spot that. Wow, a little John Glenn connection there. Hey, we've interviewed someone from this film. Also, Maurice Binder did the opening titles to this movie. I did note a little bit of Bondish there. That was interesting. Okay. And Sid Kane was a production designer of the Sea Wolves, and he was the production designer on Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Live and Let Die, and also a storyboard artist on Goldeneye. Well, there you go. Yeah. Interesting that there's all these sort of... I mean, they have to do something in between doing Bond films, because this, this falls into the gap between Moonraker and For Your Eyes Only, right? Um, that is correct. Yeah. So like John Glenn hasn't quite stepped into the director's chair to go with Free Your Eyes Only onwards. Yeah. So this is kind of like a stopgap between when he is, you know, working on whatever he's working on and then moving into, um, directing Free Your Eyes Only. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's have a drink. Let's have a smoke and a tap dance. And talk about the Sea Wolves. Cam, I wanted to hear from you. What did you think of this uh, seafaring spy adventure? Well, the thing about the Sea Wolves is... Oh, no. The pleasures of the movie, um, the precious moments you can get from this <laughs> film, <laughs> to uh, quote the Matt Monroe song that closes out the movie, another Bond connection, is that you're watching a beloved group of character actors and movie stars kind of just having fun on screen no one mm-hmm. not a single person down the line is doing their best work but they're there and they're fun to watch and so there's an amiable kind of energy to that that i think is fun and i think it worked in the wild geese as well and mm-hmm. a lot of the cast yeah. members you know cross between the two movies as a propulsive um mission based kind of war film or spy film this was very sleepy stuff and I would find scenes I enjoyed. There's some genuinely, like, I'm not going to say great, but genuinely solid action direction at times in the movie from McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. But I didn't love The Wild Geese when we tackled it on the Patreon. I thought it was, you know, it was kind of fun to watch, but it mm-hmm. didn't really grab me by the lapels and shake me. And I found myself often watching this movie going, you know, I feel like The, uh, the Wild Geese had a little more kind of oomph in it than the sea wolves does as much as i could kind of sit there and be like oh it's fun to watch trevor howard like negotiate with a brothel pimp which is not something you think you'd ever see in your life no i never thought i would ever hear trevor howard um refer to himself and i quote as the benefactor of all whores and semen i definitely sat forward in my chair and wrote that one down and was like that is a career highlight reel moment i'm sure that when trevor howard passed away they showed on the oscars you're just thinking that's what i want to be on my gravestone when i die (laughs) 
so bizarre. Like, that's the thing. This movie gives you those kind of bizarre moments with actors who, in their prime, mm-hmm. would not have had moments like this. No. Like, they're kind of trying to find their place in a changing Hollywood, and so they're showing up in movies like this, but often given kind of bizarre things to do. And that's the appeal to me sometimes with movies like this. It's utterly fascinating because one thing I remember about uh, Wild Geese or the Wild Goose, who knows, plural, I don't know, was I enjoyed the sort of, I don't like using the word vibe because it feels like sort of film critic shorthand for not knowing what to say, but there's an energy to that film and it's a film of a bygone era in a sense. You don't have films like that anymore for better or for worse. You don't have those sorts of films. And this feels exactly the same. There's a charm to the Sea Wolves. It really is like you're watching some of your favorite actors just muck around. Great. Sounds like a frolic, a sea frolic. Let's do it. But like you said, there is no tension in this film. There are some really good moments. There is a a great uh, attack on the ship at the end of the film, yeah. led by Gregory Peck leading, leading the charge. You said about action sort of photography. That whole stretch of the film, the last sort of 20 minutes, is great. Really thrilling stuff. I loved it. But there's a lot of, like, I think, Cam, you would call it shoe leather in between, <laughs> and just sort of like getting to places and getting the ship around and all oh, the engines falling out and stuff. At one point in my notes, I wrote down the Z wolves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, witty, yeah. Uh, not great, but yeah, I, as I say, it, the film has a charm to it. It feels like a different era of cinema that I do love revisiting. It feels like a film that you would watch with your father or, you know, or your parents, perhaps, uh, instead of just giving one parent there. it It's that sort of film that you see on TV growing up. And there is a nostalgia built into me for that sort of film. So from that perspective, I enjoyed it. And I wrote down, like, it's a it's a fun two hours, in a sense. Like, it is just kind of fun to hang out and chill with some of these actors that I love to watch. Rog, uh, David, all, all the bunch. But at the end of the day, I'm looking for a propulsive action spy film. And despite some moments of propulsion, the engine did indeed drop out for most of this film. It's like you have them stealing the boat. And you're like, okay, we are embarking on the mission. And then it just cuts to them like at a hotel pool playing cards. And that's when I made a note, like, what is the urgency of this mission? Because I'm very unclear on that. And, you know, they set up that this German submarine is taking down, I think it was like 44, you know, allied ships. Mm -hmm. To me, there's urgency there. It's like, we need to crack the code, like find who is sending the code to this submarine and stop it before it targets more of our people. So like, to me, that, seems like it should be pretty propulsive but there's a lot of characters just kind of like wandering around and i mentioned that trevor howard stuff at the brothel and it's like that's also just like let's just kind of stop the movie dead and have this kind of comedic banter between trevor howard and this guy and you're like does no one need to get anything done no i i don't know like in roger moore is in a whole other movie than I need, the rest yeah. of his cast members and this i was it. just so confused because i made a note at a certain point gregory peck Huge star of his time, right? Mm-hmm. Gregory Peck is barely in this movie. He disappears for significant stretches of the movie, and you just spend it with Roger Moore, which I'm not complaining. You know what? Like that, maybe we can pivot into likes, which is like Roger Moore is just effortlessly charming and fun to watch. You know, I'm seeing him hang out at a casino in this movie. 
um, you know, woo a uh, widow, uh, Mrs. Cromwell, uh, you know, played by Barbara Kellerman, who I believe this was her motion picture debut. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is cheeseball stuff, but Roger Moore is just inherently fun to watch. It's not as crazy as the Wild Geese where he's like making someone like like eat heroin or something like that <laughs> until they die and then dance afterwards it's crazy <laughs> like that was insane i don't know that roger moore does anything insane in this movie but there's a charm to him that i just find fun to watch but at the same time the roger moore story which entirely fictionalized because i don't think this cromwell stuff was even based on a nugget of truth much less the character being fictionalized i don't think any of this stuff was going on and so you are completely distracting from the men on a mission element of the movie, which is not something the Wild Geese did. The Wild Geese was pretty focused on what it was about mm-hmm. versus this movie, which is kind of like running in two different directions at the same time. And I think affecting the pace because of that. Well, I, I completely agree with basically everything you said, but I'll come at it with from a different angle slightly. Yeah. I think Roger Moore is an absolute charm. I, I think Roger Moore is a wonderful uh, actor in certain films and in certain situations i love some of his bond films i love him in this rolling around the floor in a white tuxedo shooting baddies he did not do that role he did not do that role come on roger moore (laughs) did all of his stunts and i won't hear any more about it shut your face cam he is the greatest the goat it's great to see roger moore channeling his bond in a slightly sort of darker edge to it it's nice to see that sort of stuff but you could completely remove his character. Oh, yeah. You could also completely remove the Mrs. Cromwell character. And what you'd have... I mean, you'd give her what she's doing to someone else. the uh, Doing the sort of the spy stuff. Yeah. And then you'd have an hour and 40 minute film that probably feels a lot more clippier, as it were. Like, it, it would probably go at a little bit more of a pace. Because every time you go to Roger Moore, you're taken away from... We're getting to our mission. We're on our mission. We're storming the boat. And it's like, go back to Roger Moore and he's, you know, bleeding and schmoozing with someone and there's a knife. This is all, like you said, two different stories. And I think you could take one out and it wouldn't uh, hurt the other. They're probably both very interesting stories and probably could have a nice 90 minutes for each if you wanted to. But like, you get to that point at the end where like the big attack is going on and Roger Moore is just like standing on the beach watching. He disappears in the film. And I'm like, really? Like, that's what you did with Roger Moore? He has no active role in the mission and is just watching from the beach? Like, that's a very bizarre decision. Yeah, I I don't really know what they were going for with that. That seemed like a very odd choice. And especially when you are concocting this whole fictionalized spy story for him to take part in, it's like, like, why not just kind of barrel ahead? Because I think one of the things that, like, Wild Geese did reasonably well is that it had a central mission that the mm-hmm. whole team was united on what they needed to achieve. Yep. And because of that, and it wasn't split in separate directions, you got to know the whole kind of supporting cast much better than in this movie. Because you haven't got time. You have not got time. You have a number of uh, you know character actors popping up through this movie, and I couldn't tell you that much about any of them. You know, you had like Kenneth Griffin and Patrick McNee and various actors like that, and... Outside of spotting them and recognizing them, they didn't really have personality traits. Um, I did find out that the character of Dickie had an insatiable wife. Uh, I found that out. But other than that, you just don't really get any sort of character touches, which I think you did get more so in The Wild Geese. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I, this is our like section. So I kind of want to like stray a little bit away from the Roger Moore of it all because I like 
what he's doing when he's doing it. But as a, yeah. a more like a holistic, the whole of the film, I don't think necessarily it works. But if you're going to tell me that the film has Roger Moore rolling around the floor in a white tuxedo shooting people, it's going to get a thumbs up from me in that sense. So I enjoyed that. And I quite liked the bit at the beginning with him and, and Gregory Peck on a sort of a reconnaissance mission and like outwitting a few people and doing some spy stuff themselves. They made a nice little duo on the screen. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like you have the two of them in kind of like a buddy spy movie off the mm -hmm. top. And I'm like, these two actors are old pros who have chemistry together. Give me more of this. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of suffers when it separates them. And yes, at a certain point, then Gregory Peck gets to spend time with David Niven, who's also fun to see paired like those two. So I think like that is a like about this movie. This is why I'm not as down on it as I perhaps could be given kind of the... um. Uh, wobbliness of the structure of this movie. Yeah. It's because you have these old pros who are charming together. So even if I'm watching the slowest boat ride ever with uh, David Niven and Gregory Peck, at the end of the day, I'm watching these two share scenes together, and that is fun. Yeah, it absolutely is. And speaking of other actors, I think deserve uh, a mention in the like section. I mean, Gregory Peck is is great in certain sections, but I would I've got a bit of a problem with Gregory Peck's performance. I, at times, which I'll come back to. But one person I think deserves a little bit of love is David Niven. Mm, yeah. I feel like there is a real nobility to his character that comes through very well in this film. There's like when his team, the Calcutta Light Horse, are given this mission, you know, Gregory Peck says, You won't get any medals. There'll be no pension for this. And he's like, You know, sounds like fun. Let's do it. I'm sure the boys will love it. And at every point, at every sort of hurdle that they're faced with, he is sort of this sort of British tar, stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on thing about it. Despite having a bit of fun and a bit of comedy in there too, it's there is a real, I'll use the term nobility, uh, a real strength to his character that I think really helps the film and the scenes that he's in because it adds a sense of believability that I, maybe it's just as a British guy myself, I'm recognizing it in another person. And I appreciate that from David. And I think he gives, for me, actually the best performance of the film. Well, there's something like poignant about this group of middle-aged uh, men. Geriatric. Yeah, uh, who feel useless uh -huh. at a time where the battle for the state of the world is happening. Yeah. And so, like, you know, you said nobility, and that's the right word. Like, it's like guys who are viewed as somewhat useless. They're all occupying these kind of, you know, they're taking part in the war effort, but in jobs that aren't necessarily seen as vital. Mm -hmm. And so the sense that they could feel vital and that they're contributing something to the to the larger good, there's something to that that I think in a different movie would have been maybe played on a little bit more, mm -hmm. like a more like a dramatically interested film might have really focused in on that in the characters. But I think, you know, when you hire someone like a David Niven, he reads a script He's probably like, well, this won't be one of my greatest films, but I understand how to play this character. I know where this character is coming from, and that comes through when you watch the movie. Yeah, I mean, it, this film takes me back to a show I don't think you'll be familiar with, Cam, but I'm sure a lot of our British listeners will know, which is Dad's Army. Is that something you've ever come across before? No. So Dad's Army is um, I, it's a World War II British comedy basically about the the home guard i think that's what they were called off the top of my head where it's a lot of geriatrics in air quotes during wartime in england who are 
defending England, and they're kind of the last line of defense if the Nazis ever were to invade. Uh, but they're basically looking after the the shore and and the local people inside of England because they can't be off fighting the war in Europe. And much as there's a lot of jokes at their expense about being old and stuff, throughout the show there is a sort of greater purpose to it all. And nobility again is the word I'd come back to, where you know ultimately they are giving their lives again because these people all would have served during World War One for their country. And that is something to admire. And I appreciate the film doesn't sort of shy away from giving these guys, our sea wolves, a little bit of the sort of spotlight and a little bit of love that they are doing it again. Yeah, like as an adaptation of a real life operation, I think the sea wolves is highly suspect. Sure. But the movie very much believes in its characters mm -hmm. and supports them. Because, you know, you look at even like the jaunty opening music, it's very much like the movie loves these these men right like mm -hmm. it really yep. genuinely does and when you get to all the action stuff at the end it's going out of its way to make them look as cool as humanly possible it's not making fun of them outside of like a playful moment where they're like training and trying to do a push-up things like that like that's where mm -hmm. the movie gets a little bit of comedy out of the kind of the older age aspect although if they're middle-aged they should be able to do a push-up i would think but nonetheless um i think like the movie has its heart in the right place which is, sure. I think, a good thing because I think there's a way to make this seem sad. Like, this could have been kind of a sad movie to watch when you're watching kind of actors who are at one point, like, at the top of their industry, kind of, you know, just kind of sludging through a movie like this. Yeah. It could come across as kind of like, oh, that's unfortunate. But I think the movie champions them enough that you you feel victory for them, even if the movie isn't a home run. Yeah, I think like in a better film that was perhaps a bit more dramatic, like you said, there would be probably more stakes and you would probably see some more loss and there would be a real sense of this is my last chance, this is my last fight, this is the last charge of the Calcutta light horse or whatever it is. But the, the, the thing you should be highlighting is the last charge because these people are, as the film points out, geriatric. It would be their last chance to do something for king and country and that, you know, that uh, the film celebrates it and I, and I appreciate that. And I think the, the, the last charge element is important, but, the, you know, they should have been more like saying goodbye to their wives. Because in the film, in The Sea Wolves, Gregory Peck says, oh, just uh, tell them you're off for it to do a conference or something. Kind of funny and it's all played quite jovially. But I think for a lot of them, they would be seeing it as I'm not coming back from this. I'm doing this for my country to help fight the, the war effort that I haven't been able to contribute to. And I feel so desperate that I need to do it. And there is actually a very dramatic story in there. So much so that I found it, I found it quite poignant saying that. Weirdly. So I think that is a shame and a loss that we didn't see that film. But it doesn't mean you can't have fun with the sort of more the jovial side of it, as I said earlier. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see an alternate take on this where it is deal dealt with more dramatically because like this these older guys are, you know, leaving their wives of many, many years mm -hmm. potentially to die. You don't get that vibe from the movie. No. Like it's kind of like, oh, I'm going on a like a business cruise to get, you know, liquored up and whatever. And it's like, okay, like there would be real sacrifice in the decision they're making. And I don't think the real life operation was particularly violent. Uh, there was nah. no big gun battle on the ship or anything like that. But nonetheless, it was a potentially dangerous mission they were taking part in. Mm -hmm. And the movie doesn't really give it that sort of gravitas. No, and I think there is uh, a film in which it deals more with that drama and the actual mission itself is barely important. 
because it's actually more about who makes it home. Yeah. Like it almost, it's a story almost told from the wife's perspective. I know this sounds very boring to some listeners, but like I, I'm talking <laughs> it from a dramatic standpoint. But let's, we're still in the like section. So something I wanted to bring up as well is, we mentioned it earlier, but let's just talk about it a little bit more in terms of some of the action set pieces in the film that, that do work. For me, it is that, that the last charge in onto the mission itself and, and storming the boat and all spinning up and doing their things and, and working together to successfully complete the mission with a minimal loss of lives. Even, you know, the German soldiers are mostly saved. Uh, yeah, I just think that's very well handled. It reminded me a lot. And then when it reminded me, it actually pointed out how similar these two films are. And that is Spy Ship, which is a film we tackled last year on the show. Yeah. There is a storming of a boat. There is secret messages going out to sink ships in the Atlantic in this scenario instead of it around the coast of India. Uh, quite a few similarities between those two films. Interesting to point out and maybe something I'll, I'll talk about more on social media during the week. But I just I just want to say I did enjoy that uh, that storming of the boat. It felt almost like an early version of what you'd see in something like Under Siege. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a big fan of that movie. And um, Like the oil canisters and stuff, lighting them on fire. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, Andrew uh, McLaughlin was not a great director by any stretch. But he could stage solid action. Mm-hmm. And he had a long career of doing westerns. And, you know, that's essential to westerns as well. Sure. And when I watched this finale, is it, like, going to go down in the books as one of the all-time great action sequences we've tackled on the show? No, but it's all effective. I'm seeing the actors, and they feel like participants in the action. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like, you know, sometimes when you watch action in movies nowadays, there's a lot of CG doubling and stuff where you kind of are removed from it. Whereas when I watch this, it all is practical. I can feel like, you know, Gregory Peck is storming through the ship, firing, you know, guns on the ship, and, you know, German soldiers are going down. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty exciting stuff. It's fun to watch when I'm watching them light the fires on the boat. It's real fire, and it carries, like, a weight to it that's just genuinely engaging. I I actually was surprised at how much fun I had with the finale, Mm -hmm. given that, the movie had been quite plodding along the way. And even like, you know, you have the boat theft at a certain point where I was like, well, that was pretty low tension. And so I was kind of expecting a very similar finale, but I thought they kind of ramped it up and it worked. I did make a note though, that I thought it was funny that um, (laughs) I don't think a single sea wolf or who a single one of our heroes, I should say, (laughs) who is uh, shot is ever killed. Whereas like the Germans, several of them die unsurprising let's just say in a film like this you want your sea wolves or whoever they are to be seen in a heroic light so they can take a few bullets whereas the the nazis can't i also wonder if it's because in real life there was no casualties from the uh you know the allies going in the Mm -hmm. british going in and so they didn't want to necessarily give off that impression, but you can have them get shot because that raises up the tension and raises up the danger factor, mm-hmm. but they have to all survive. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And and uh, just asking about uh, other set pieces, was there any other sort of maybe action or anything else that stood out to you that you wanted to sort of highlight? I don't really know that. I mean, it it was kind of fun seeing Roger Moore do that scene you mentioned where he does like the roll and takes down the two Nazis in the like hotel room he throws a chair at them too which is always nice to see a chair being thrown in a spy film yeah we've seen that before in the man who knew too much uh that's the king of throwing chair movies Mm -hmm. um but like there's also some just other cool small beats like you have like kind of like a dock fight with gregory peck and two assailants that 
you're watching, you know, real actors and stuntmen stage a fight. It's reasonably effective. And also actually a moment I thought was maybe the best kind of small moment, which is the um, Roger Moore is in bed with the Barbara Kellerman character, Mrs. Cromwell, Mm -hmm. and some guys burst in or one guy burst in and Roger Moore kills him. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like played messy too. Yeah. Like you have Barbara Kellerman doing what I called the um, topless champagne toss Mm -hmm. where it's like she, you know, hurls this bottle at him in a way that's like feels real because there's no sense of like hiding her nakedness. It's like, this is a desperate situation. And I'm sure that there was perhaps, um, less pure thoughts going through the filmmakers when they're shooting a scene like that with an actress in a movie like this, you know, but, and given the era 1980, but nonetheless, it felt kind of real. And then to have Roger Moore like spring up and kill him, I thought like that moment was quite effective. So, uh, Barbara, we're going to want you to throw this champagne bottle at these uh, Nazis coming through the door. And when you do, your top's going to come off and we're going to see everything. Yeah. But um, but uh, but um, but uh, excuse me, Andrew. Um, why couldn't I just be wearing a top? Ah, uh, well, um, you're uh, you're uh, with uh, Roger Moore in bed. Yeah, uh, shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's the thing. It's 1980, and nudity is something they love to put into you know action movies and horror and all that sort of thing as a marketing uh kind of thing, um, or just to appeal to people's basest desires as to what they want to see in kind of a B movie kind of thing. Um, but in the moment, it feels like something that might actually happen. Oh, yeah, it, it feels entirely believable. And same with Roger taking the guy out and, and breaking his neck, which is, again, it's interesting to see from a you know Bond film fan perspective. You know, this is Bond is half the reason why this podcast exists. And I know we shouldn't tie everything back to it, but it exists. And so seeing Roger do something you don't see him do as Bond, really, overtly anyway bond often shoots people but you don't necessarily see tons of blood he's not really doing hand-to-hand combat breaking people's necks no that's something different and it's interesting that the year after this he does um for your eyes only where he has the scene where he kicks the guy in the car off the hill and roger Mm -hmm. moore had like a lot of problems with that and then i'm like well wait what about the events of the sea wolves (laughs) well i think that was more to do with how bond is perceived his bond Uh, okay because then, of course, a couple of years before this, he kills a man with heroin. That's also true. That's true. Roger Moore is happy to kill people, just not as James Bond. Hmm. Fair, fair. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Look alive, agents. We're here with important intel on how you can support the Spy Hearts podcast. See, we don't have Electric King bankrolling us, which is why the Spy Hearts Patreon is so crucial. But fear not, we have bonuses galore. That's a bingo. Over on the Patreon, you can listen to our ever-expanding Agents in the Field library, where we review major movies from your favorite spy actors, plus our latest show, OSS, in which we dive into the world of cloak and dagger television, from Ian Fleming biopics to Le Carre miniseries and more. Now, Cam, tell the listeners about this week's top secret broadcast. Scott, we are closing out the month, and so for the January debrief, we're going to look at Slow Horses Season 3, Steven Soderbergh's Black Bag, and a whole lot more. So strap on your Condor Man wings and soar into the future with us over at patreon.com slash spyhearts. But before Big O zaps us with a red pulsating laser, let's get back to the spy jinx.
Well, Cam, uh, much like this film, I'm feeling a bit thin on top and thick in the middle, so we need to talk about the bad side of things. Dislike for the Sea Wolves. Well, I mean, the thing is, we've talked about like the pacing elements. Sure. Um, so it's I don't want to like beat a dead horse. Uh, <laughs> Wolf. <laughs> oh, I was mm. gonna say a light horse. <laughs> oh, um, I'm tying it all together, but accidentally there. Um, but let's just have a look at that Roger Moore side plot with Barbara Kellerman's character, Mrs. Cromwell. Sure. Okay. I don't hate it necessarily. I think actually Barbara Kellerman is going above and beyond the assignment. Is actually really trying to give a strong performance. Yeah. But there's such a cheesiness to it where it's like she is someone who is going around murdering, you know, basically cleaning up loose ends um, on the part of the Nazis. And they are falling to the oldest cliche, which is like, once you sleep with Roger Moore or the male lead in this case, you are, if you're a female spy, you you are just confused. And so much of this movie is her just being like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do anymore. You know, I've gone out with Roger Moore and my life is forever changed. And I just felt like the conflict, the way they staged that character felt very soap opery. Mm-hmm. It did not feel grounded in a real psychology. And I would have either preferred she was just like merciless femme fatale, you know, sure. spy, like which could have been really good because I think she could do it. Like you see on screen, she has that ability, especially in a scene where she's like killing Trevor Howard for example, mm-hmm. um, versus this kind of like bubbly kind of uh, insipid romance. Well, you know, that uh, sort of femme fatale you're asking for harkens back to Spy Ship, a film I mentioned earlier, where it, again, is a female agent selling secrets to the Nazis um, about shipping yeah. lanes and things like that. So, And she's a lot more brutal uh-huh. in that film than, than uh, Kellerman is in this. But what I will say not necessarily coming to the aid of this film, but interestingly is there's a moment where Roger Moore, and I understand, you know, you get a taste, you want more. It <laughs> it makes sense. But there's a point where Roger Moore's character turns to Kellerman and says, I love you. And this is before he's necessarily cottoned on that she is the agent. So one wonders if they also wrote Roger Moore to be a bit of a sap in this one too. Did you buy that as a love story? Oh, it, they ha- I mean, they had a bit of chemistry, but like, I, I don't think anyone wouldn't have chemistry with Roger Moore. I'm pretty sure a, a, a sea wolf, if a thing existed, would have chemistry with Roger Moore. I felt like he, it was a little bit of just plug Roger Moore into a very familiar role, which is yeah. like hanging out at a casino, yeah. like chatting up a woman sitting next to him. I'm like, okay, there's a shorthand going on here that it's almost like, it doesn't matter whether they have chemistry. They know we'll just accept it because we've seen it and we love Roger Moore for doing this sort of thing in some of the biggest box office hits of the last few years. Yeah, but they get him in for that very reason. So if you accept that, then you just move on. That He is there to be your sort of Lothario. And because he is... Roger Moore is the spy of this. Or like Obviously, Kellerman is the agent, the double agent, as it were. But Roger Moore is working as your sort of undercover spy finding things out. That's the spy story of this film. Everything else is something is the man on the mission side of things. Um, does their romance work? Not in the slightest. Do I have a problem with watching Roger Moore in a romance that doesn't work? Not in the slightest, because I would watch him do basically anything. Yeah, that's the thing. It, it works because you like Roger Moore, but when you examine it on the face of it, it's uh, <laughs> pretty silly stuff. It feels like it could almost be like, on a television show or something like a, a nighttime soap it's very yeah it's very soapy 
uh, yeah, cloy. Um, yeah, it, it is what it is. It's definitely a, a downside to this film. Yeah, and it's such a distraction from what the actual story is that that makes it. It's weird because like it's enjoyable enough because it's Roger Moore, but it is really really distracting from what the movie is. It, it is, it is, it is. But it isn't actually my biggest dislike. It's something that I haven't really got into. Okay. Uh, um, there's a, there is a side one that maybe we can come back to, which is I don't think Gregory Peck was doing a good job in this film. Yeah, I yeah I can see that. Um, I mean he he looks he looks good in the action sequence at the end, but you give anyone a machine gun and tell them to storm a ship like Steven Seagal under siege, they're gonna look pretty cool. But at other at no point other than that is he going above a four. There is no there is no uh, sort of tension, no pressure, no urgency in his performance. That is actually very true, but that could be said for so much of the cast. Like, there's never a sense of urgency from anyone, <laughs> which is why I was so confused at certain points as to how uh, crucial this mission was. But Gregory Peck is such a weird one because he's one of these stars who, in his best work, there's few better. You know, you watch To Kill a Mockingbird and you're like, this man is just, you're in awe of his performance. But he comes across sometimes as very stiff. And in these kinds of action movies that seems to have been the case uh more so although like guns of navarone i think is a much better example of gregory peck Mm -hmm. um in an action film that one to me works whereas like here he just seems a little too aloof and yeah you want someone who as a leader is either it's okay if they're a little aloof but you want to see the them as an inspiring figure yeah we're like we want to charge into battle behind this guy and I don't know that he ever unlocks that. There's a there's a film that's springing to my mind. It's a Christmas film with is it Bing Crosby? It's about two guys and two girls who have like a performance act, and they go up to the north, uh, like in Vermont or something, and stage a performance for their old general. Okay, there's two movies I think that could be. It could be uh, White Christmas or Holiday Inn. I think it's White Christmas. Okay, because like White Christmas was kind of a loose remake of Holiday Inn. Okay. I'm not even sure if it's Bing Crosby or not. I could be wrong on that one. I don't think it is, actually. It, Bing Crosby is in both. Okay, fine. Well, the idea of the film is they end up going to stay in this, re- this sort of lodge in Vermont, and they find out that it's owned by a, the general they used to work for, or a colonel, or something like that. And to help him in his ailing lodge, they put this performance on together and get all of their old comrades together to salute him in the hall. And there is this really emotional moment where like the general has to sort of walk in and be sort of declared in front of all of his peers that respect him. And you're, you're not really given much of that. It's all shorthand stuff, but you know, there is a lot of love in that room. And I get emotional watching that scene whenever I watch that film, because you can just, I mean, you've, all of us have had relationships in our lives where we've respected someone or looked up to someone, peers and or you know mentors in our life, and we've had those relationships. At no point did I feel like anyone in the Calcutta Light Horse had any sort of respect for Gregory Peck beyond he is currently an SOE and we aren't, and he is our route to helping the war effort. Whereas I feel like you could have done it in a different way where there was, like he felt like a sense of ownership over this team of, uh, alleged sea wolves and uh, their loss would hurt him and you would like want they are like throwing themselves in front of grenades to protect him stuff like that you could do that uh, and and that would give more drama for Gregory Peck to play with and actually more things for the other actors to chew on that's all one thing and that was the little thing I wanted to talk about and that 
could have been improved. But what I really want to drill into for a second with you is the film's lack of tension. Yeah. It's because the premise is there is um, locations of British warcraft, naval warcraft, or actually allied, I should say, being shot down and sunk by U-boats in the sort of uh, the bay in Goa, I believe it is, or around sort of the uh, the sea around India, thanks to someone who's getting information and leaking it to the Nazis. There's your premise. And it is our men, our Sea Wolves' mission to take down these boats that are sending the signals to the U-boats so they can make these attacks. Okay. But we're never told... Apart from the fact that we want to you know, support the Allies, any reason why particularly this needs to be done now and not in six months' time. Mm. This could easily be fixed, but I think it's a failing of the film that you do not have any sort of ticking clock. Yeah, You could have said like there is a, a shipment of, of guns or bullets coming in for our boys on the front line, or there is like food we need to get to fight a famine, or anything. I just made up two things and put it out of my butt. There's a lot of things you could throw at this. Um, there is, you know, I don't know, Winston Churchill is coming over on a boat <laughs> and we need to not have that boat suck. Well, I mean, it, you laugh, but that's a fairly easy premise to sell. Yeah. And the thing is, like, the movie is based on real events, yeah. but it's taking plenty of liberties. So it's not outrageous to try to inject something dramatically mm-hmm. interesting to kind of amp up that tension. I think it's entirely within the rights of the filmmakers at a certain point when they're taking elements of other operations to mix into this real thing. So like why not? Sure. Um I just thought it was so so strange like to set up this scenario that seems like something that's important. But then you're like cutting to like, you know, old man workout montages and Patrick McNee standing on his head and I'm like, well does this need to be done? Like does this is this a vital task that needs to be achieved right now? Wait, why am I watching them sit by the pool? Wait, why am I watching Roger Moore, you know, seduce this uh, young woman? Like, why are these things happening when I've been told that this, you know, U-boat attack that's been going on, these various attacks, are something that is, like, really, really damaging? Exactly. It doesn't really add up. And, like, you see the opening of the film is... Reminded me a lot of uh, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 of opening on a U-boat, you know, a submarine, doing a firing a torpedo. Or you could say Hunt for Red October, something like that. But then you don't really see... You see it hit the Allied ship, but you don't see the results on the Allied ship or the loss of life or any of the peril that comes with it. Another way of selling it would just be you see some sailors early on and then you find out their boat was sunk yeah and those people have died you've met them and then there is a tangible sense of loss to the viewer which again adds tension none of that's uh, visible on screen it's all just more you're told that these things are happening um it's 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 not it's the opposite they're not telling they're not showing us they're just telling us that this is happening and we need to stop it which is a shame yeah like that to me is ultimately my biggest issue with the movie. Yeah. Which is just like it doesn't pull me through the movie. I'm kind of like meandering through 2 hours with likable actors, some solid action and not a heck lot else. No. I also wish just as a a final note before I move us on maybe is I wish I kn- knew more about the characters. Well, that's the thing. I knew yeah. more about the 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 wolves. Like they are 
quite a homogenous group of people. There are like moments of of, of funniness. There's a, there's a guy who is a cook and he makes a really bad sort of meal. So he throws some curry powder in it to sort of hide the fact. But then you don't actually get to see them eating the meal yeah. to see if it's good or not to get the punchline to that joke. There is a guy standing on his head. That's never really paid off as to why he's doing that or if that's useful at all in the mission. Maybe he has to dangle upside down and work and you know under pressure like that. Never used in the film. Little things like that. You could have added some color to these troopers, but unfortunately what you get is the storming of the boat and some people do get shot, but I couldn't tell you who. The guy with the eye patch was the only one that jumped out at me. Sure. And that's because he has an eye patch. Exactly, yes. I couldn't tell you anything about his character. No, although he has been in a few other films. I can't remember the actor's name, but he's he's gone around. Well, like most of these guys in the team have. Like, yeah. They're all, you know, British character actors who are, you know, used in all sorts of movies like this. And a lot of them are from the original Wild Geese. Mm. And I just don't have any sense as to who most of them are in this movie. Trevor Howard fares the best, but he's, uh, yeah. you know, a little bit of a elevated stature than the rest of them, just in terms of, you know, renown. Yeah. And another Bond connection, because wasn't he up for the role at some point before? Trevor Howard? Yeah. Might have been. I can't remember. Maybe. I could be wrong. But any other sort of dislikes you want to bring up, Cam? Yeah. One little bit. Okay. That guy puking off the boat. As someone who does not like seeing vomiting in movies, that was about enough for me. It was very vivid. Did you uh, blow chunks at him blowing chunks? I have not thrown up since September 16th, 1993. So no, I did not. Don't just breeze past that statement. That's such an odd and specific thing to firstly know the date the last time you threw up, but also like actively to fight throwing up. I'm like Jerry Seinfeld and I have not had a black and white cookie. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I, I last threw up two weeks ago, so uh, I, I can't hold any record whatsoever. Yeah, so when I'm just seeing that on screen, I'm like, ugh, dislike, 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 please. <laughs> Okay, before we get to the knock list, let's just look at final notes. I've got two things. Cam, have you got anything you want to bring up? Well, you know, Moonraker was the year before this, and mm -hmm. it famously had a parade scene. And when I was watching another parade scene in this movie that had a similar vibe as Moonraker, uh, I couldn't help but note that one down. It's just a shame there's no sort of junk canoe and a, and a peeing dog in the background. Right? Although, like, the peeing dog was in uh, Thunderball, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, like, people wearing 007 hats. I needed, like, Richard Keel to show up wearing one of those big, like, paper mache outfits. What was that outfit in Moonraker? Is it, like, a duck or something? Or a clown? Or... Clown. A clown. Okay. Yeah. That, I mean, actually probably the, one of the scariest moments in any Bond film. I think it is. It's definitely up there. I mean, Moonraker also has that dog scene with Corinne in the woods, which is pretty intense as well. Yeah. So Moonraker is such a weird movie where it's like very campy and silly, but has some of the most scary moments in Bond history. <laughs> Actually, come to think of it, Richard Keel is involved in another of the scariest moments in my head, which is when he jumps out the cupboard in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, another one, yeah. Big jump scare there. Yeah. Yeah. Richard Keel, scary guy. A couple other things I had. There's the character of Manuel who they go and are kind of shaking down for information early on in the movie. And he runs like a casino uh, and restaurant. And this is the sweatiest man I've ever seen in a movie. Like, I don't know what they were doing to him. They were like pouring some sort of like liquid on him to make him look sweatier than any person who's ever appeared in a movie before. To be fair, Cam, you've seen me look just as sweaty when we started our interview with Denise Richards. Very true. Very true. 
I, I'm, I'm still dripping. <laughs> and just the last little thing I had noted was there's a lot of very wonky looking model boat shots in this movie. Oh no, they look <laughs> yes, great. They do not look great. I'm sorry. I've seen many a convincing model boats in movies and these were not among them. It reminded me of, uh, and this is, I mean, I, I made a Dad's Army reference earlier in the episode. I'm going to get even more specific here. And I'm sorry, Cam, you're going to have to like, just turn your brain off for a couple of minutes. That's fine. It reminded me a lot of, uh, you're familiar with uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, I assume. Yep. You're, you're riding in him now. But <laughs> I, think called, choo -choo. I think it was called Thomas and Friends over there, if I remember correctly. Um, it might have been. I'm a little too old to have followed the exploits of Thomas, but I know enough to know who Thomas was. Plus, okay. as someone who was a cake decorator for many, many, many years, I made no shortage of Thomas the Tank Engine cakes. Okay. One day I'll ask you uh, which train you are from Thomas the Tank Engine like in uh, Bullet Train. Couldn't answer it. Uh, that sounds like a diesel answer. But one show that was made uh, sort of as a contemporary to Thomas in, in sort of the idea of these uh, anthropomorphized items like a train, there was also one about boats called Tugs. Oh, okay. T-U-G-S. Uh, only lasted one season and it was cancelled. It was a show I absolutely adored as a kid. I had them all on VHS. And then my house was broken into and the VHSs were stolen with my uh, VCR. Uh, I'm sure that Robert was very disappointed when he got home and saw my burnt-out copies of Tugs. But those boats reminded me just like the ones in Tugs. So uh, for me, it was sort of heartwarming and nostalgic. Okay. I mean, I've seen many a movies that use the model boats, and sometimes they actually work. And these ones, I was like, this looks pretty dinky. Okay. Well, I, I love a bit of model work in, in films. You get that. You also get a really great explosion on the boat where a guy does a somersault off of a deck to a lower deck, which I think is just a great bit of stunt work I always love to see. Also, the guy who does like the um, jump off a um, trampoline in front of an explosion to look like that's, it's throwing him that's through the That's the one air. I mean. That's yeah, the, the one? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, stuff like that's great. You also get like someone doubling Gregory Peck jumping off the side of the boat after being shot, which is also fun. Yeah, that was that was great. That moment I actually rewound and watched again. Yeah, I, I could see you doing that. But I, I do love that. But we, we love the end sequence of this film, guys. We think it was great. Uh, my notes are... Um, <laughs> we haven't met, seen it in a while in a spy film, but it always gets an eyebrow from you. We had Rule Britannia played in the film. Yeah, that's right. We did. We did. What? When the sea wolves were sailing off in the sort of midst of the film, we got to Royal Britannia. I, of course, stood up uh, and, in, and embraced the king uh, and swore allegiance to the flag. And the king was like, the heroes are not the sea wolves. The sea wolves are the Germans. <laughs> How could you be so wrong? <laughs> uh, and my last note was, we didn't really speak about it, but you know, there are a lot of Bond connections in this film. I mean, you mentioned Matt Monroe doing the sort of semi-quasi theme song for the film. Yep. Uh, you've got the 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 Binder titles. You've got a lot of people working behind the scenes. A lot of people working in front of the camera. It is kind of weird to think of just this is basically what they were doing with their off year between Bond films. Right. Yeah. They would have been prepping to go into For Your Eyes Only. Um. Yeah. It's fun to see like that era of movies. I mean, I'm sure a lot. Not this one, but a lot of them are shot at like Pinewood, for example, in that mm -hmm. era. So you're seeing a lot of crossover with talent, and it is cool, not just to see like, oh, edited by John Glenn, that's interesting, but then you keep going into the credits, it's like, oh, there's someone else, there's someone else, there's someone else, and it's just like, you know, they were the best of the best. Yeah, it wasn't like it was Roger Moore bringing his friends along, they wanted great filmmakers, and these are the people.
Yeah. Yeah. Very reliable British talent. Yeah. Well, speaking of reliable British talent, you have me as a host. Let's get to the knock list. Cam, I'll throw the question to you, sir. The Seawolves, is it sailing into the knock list? (laughs) It is not. Uh, I think for all the reasons we've underlined through this episode, Seawolves is a perfect like uh, 4 p.m. watch on TV kind of movie, but uh, I wouldn't say it's a whole lot more. No, unfortunately, we have beached. Uh, the Seawolves is not making a knock list for me either. We can't even figure out who the Seawolves are. <laughs> Ow! <laughs> it needs to be more of a whimper at this point. That was kind of me trying to do the sad howl. Okay, fair enough. But it is a no for me. There are bits of this film I really enjoy. I think it's a perfectly easy watch for two hours. I'm not sure I'd go back to it again. I wish it was maybe a bit shorter. It did definitely overstay its welcome Mm -hmm. for me. But yeah, there are elements at the end of the film I'd love to see again. So I think I could probably sit through it just to hang out with some of my favorite British actors of that time. But alas, two no's. And as such, The Seawolves is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete. And filed as classified. It did make me want to do the Wild Geese 2 on Patreon. So I've had people say to us that the Wild Geese has like some spy credentials that we could actually cover it. So I'd be interested to hear Uh, uh, an argument for that. I'm not sure. uh, Personally, we're past (laughs) the bar. Mm. I don't think so. Not from the movie I watched. No, well, I watched it with you, buddy. So yeah, I I don't know. But um, yeah, maybe we will do Wild Geese 2 on the Patreon. Watch this space. Yeah, Edward Fox is in that movie, so there's our connection. You know, that's our three spies right there. Okay, yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not got Roger Moore in it? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Barbara oh. Carrera. Barbara Carrera's in it. She's one of the leads. Really? Yeah. Yes. All right, we're definitely doing Wild Geese 2 on the Patreon. There you go, folks. Cheap plug number three of the episode, if you count the ad in the middle. Patreon.com slash spyhards. That's your mission. But speaking of missions, Cam, I'll throw the question to you, sir. What are we talking about next week? Scott, we're going to tackle an impossible mission, or at least Mm. seemingly impossible. We are returning to the world of the IMF to take a look at 2000's Mission Impossible 2, directed by John Woo. Yes, I am so glad we are back with the IMF. I can't wait to take a look around this film. (laughs) Oh boy, there'll be plenty of Limp Bizkit goodness to come. Oh yeah, well... Yeah, we have two really great Spymaster interviews coming along with the film and a great guest returning to the show to be our first Mission Impossible guest as well. So your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to unleash the doves and hop on your motorcycle. Join us next week as we take a look at 2000's Mission Impossible 2. If you like what you heard on this show, cheap plug number four, please consider supporting us over on Patreon, patreon.com slash spyhards. A few different options of how you can support the show and over 50 bonus episodes to gain access to right now. Don't miss out. There'll be links in the show notes below. Make sure you follow us discreetly as always on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But if any of you are planning to get sozzled this evening, good. We both intend to. <laughs>